Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Pam Taylor tells us about Farnham and the surrounding area during the First English Civil War. I'm going to be talking about Farnham in the Civil War. It's not going to be huge battle scenes because Farnham didn't see any huge battle scenes. Victor Ambrose, the illustrator from Time Team, did one of his last set of drawings actually in Farnham for Farnham Museum. So if we consider Civil War, who does it affect? It may be of supreme importance to the main players, but many people have little interest until it comes to their doorstep. In the 17th century, news traveled much slower than today, so many did not realize what was happening. However, in a town where trade was important like Farnham, people may have been more aware than in the depths of the country, like Tilford. The causes of the war were complex and had been building for some time. Divisions on religious, political and social issues had been growing since the late Tudor period, but seemed to have been compounded by the attitude of some key personalities, mentioning no names, who refused to compromise or sacrifice any of their principles. And there were lots of those principles at stake during the war. Charles was an upholder of the doctrine of the divine right of kings, which came into conflict with many in Parliament. They had developed over the years their role to raise taxes, make laws and allocate money for the king's use. Charles's wish to exert arbitrary use of power was therefore a source of friction with Parliament. We can't imagine that today. Religion was also an issue. Although the Church of England was by this time basically Protestant, many nonconformist sects had grown up who believed in congregational worship with no bishops. Charles's marriage to a Catholic princess did not help in this regard. Economic factors also played a part. Taxes for a mismanaged war with Spain proved very unpopular. And when in 1626, Parliament refused to vote for more money, Charles raised it by forced loans. In 1628, Parliament produced a petition of right, hoping to limit the king's power. Charles's response was to agree. And then it was annulled by his dismissal of Parliament for 11 years. Meanwhile, the Scots were very unhappy at the imposition of a new prayer book. Under the influence of the bishops, this led to the writing of the Covenant, under which the church in Scotland would be Presbyterian-based. That is, no bishops. Many in Scotland signed the Covenant. The Scots ultimately wanted to get Charles to sign it, and to impose the Presbyterian model in England as well. This issue led to Charles's two so-called bishops' wars in Scotland and the short and long parliament in England. 
His need for money for a campaign in Ireland, combined with the growing demands of Parliament to produce a toxic state of affairs where the King was effectively excluded from his capital. After a propaganda war from both sides, local skirmishes broke out, leading in 1642 to a formal declaration of war. Once the King's standard was raised, the powerful got active in their usual fashion. The local story is based on Farnham in the Civil War and the Commonwealth, which is published by the Museum Society some years ago. It looks a very humble book, and it is, but it is an extraordinary bundle of facts, if you like. It's an amazing book. So I would like to pay tribute to Lawrence Spring and Derek Hall, who wrote it. They were, and still are, I believe, at the Surrey History Centre and a fount of all knowledge. So anything that I have interpreted from the book wrongly is my fault, not theirs, I'm sure. Farnham was quite active in the local area. But is it a case of local pride gone mad? I know that Farnham is a special place, but does it have an important or any role in the sad story of the English civil wars? Here's a quotation from the book. The topographical location of Farnham contributed substantially to its status as one of the more important towns in Surrey at the time. It lay in a well-watered river valley, astride two main roads, namely the London to Southampton route and the east-west thoroughfare of the North Downs trackway running from the Kent coast to the Wiltshire Downlands. Farnham is in that funny little bulge of Surrey. It's almost Hampshire, but we won't admit it. There is a road coming through and it goes into Hampshire and then out again. And that is the road up to London. So that goes up through Bagshot and then it goes up to Staines where there was a river crossing. So that is the north-south road. It then goes down through Alton and then goes down to Southampton. And then we've got the east-west road coming from Winchester and coming across to the A25, basically. So you've got the crossing at Farnham, which they reckon is important, and you will see later that it is. And then if we quote further, the importance of Farnham as a garrison town within which a large army might be billeted from time to time lay not only in the resources available for the accommodation and welfare of men and horses, but its strategic location with respect to the roads and cross-country communication to the south of London. It was a good billet for soldiers. And then the killer argument. In his efforts to regain his capital, because remember Charles wasn't in his capital at the beginning of the war, the movements of the King's Oxford army to the north and west of London were matched by the tactics of the royalist commanders in the southwest to give the effect of a pincer movement aimed at the metropolis. Blocking the route of advance into Surrey, Sussex and thence to Kent was the town of Farnham with its castle guarding the cross-country routes from London to the south coast and isolating the royalist sympathisers in Kent. Farnham, according to these people, was an important strategic. So, is the claim for Farnham analogous to Spike Milligan's claim, Hitler and my part in his downfall? Let's look at the state of Farnham and the castle at the start of the war. Farnham was a reasonably prosperous town of some 299 houses. So that was in the borough, 
Castle Street, a few in East Street, some in West Street, and then coming down towards the river and across the river. So there were 299 houses, mostly in the central area. Badshot Lee had 41, and Tilford, a surprising 58. The chief source of income had come from wool, but by 1620, there was a sharp decline, which encouraged some to engage in the new venture of hop growing. The new market in corn was developing, perhaps due to the town's position. However, some bad harvests and outbreaks of plague had led many to lean times. There was a parish church and a Puritan lecturer who even lived in the village at one point due to the citation of the vicar for scandalous conduct. Wouldn't happen now, would it? The castle was falling into disrepair. The stable block had burned down during James I's reign. It was said that there were no inhabitants but jackdaws and crows. So that wasn't very promising. How did the war get started on a local scale? In Surrey, the Lord Lieutenant was Henry Percy, perhaps better known as the Earl of Northumberland. Not perhaps a natural supporter of Parliament, but somehow preoccupied with the events in the North. So while the cat was away, the mice got busy in the persons of two of his deputies, Sir Richard Onslow and Nicholas Stoughton, who in 1632 issued a warrant to the Hundred of Farnham, requiring all persons of able bodies betwixt 16 and 60 presently with all speed possible to come to the lion in Farnham for the defence and safety of themselves, their wives, children and estates, and to bring with them such arms as they had, and the rest should be furnished there. This was a call to muster that would be repeated. As the gentlemen were on the side of Parliament, this meant that the citizens of Farnham would fight on that side, regardless of any reservations that they might have had about taking up arms against their anointed king. It is interesting that there was a strong strand of nonconformity in the town, shown by their antagonism to the appointed incumbent in the parish church. So maybe it was not unpopular. What type of soldiers emerged from these musters? It is assumed that class and station played a large part in the role that they played. Perhaps the possession of effective arms and a horse helped some attain a higher rank. Where the uniforms and kit came from and the money to buy them is of consideration. Did Parliament have access to the fruits of taxation? The Farnham Greencoats consist of about 100 men, very much varying in rank and degree. The number of officers, ranging from captain to major general, seems to be a high proportion, being upwards of 40%. Maybe some of the lesser ranks were deemed too insignificant to record. There are certainly many locally well-known townspeople whose family names occur elsewhere in the town's records in happier circumstances. How much coercion was involved, I'm not sure nor how much people understood the cause for which they were agreeing to fight. Certainly, favours would have been called in and influence applied. As for dress, the popular conception of lace-bedecked king's men is generally false. Both sides wore similar garb and were distinguished by their jacket colours or field signs. Room for friendly fire confusion, I think, here. There were two types of mounted soldiers, 
the higher status cavalry, who were generally placed on the wings in battle order. These had body protection and a sword and pistols or carbines as firepower. The dragoons were often used as re uh, reconnaissance troops and used to flank the enemy uh, using both swords and muskets. Of the foot soldiers, there were the well-known pikemen and the musketeers. The formation of closely placed men with pikes, 16 to 18 feet long, was a fearsome sight to both foot and mounted foe. Muskets were generally matchlocks. Lit from a lighted fuse, these posed a danger where large amounts of gunpowder from the cannon was present. Musketeers usually wore no armor, but the pikemen often wore protection. Gunners were important and skilled people as they manned the heavy guns, particularly effective in a siege. As in civilian life, there was a body of men dubbed pioneers. These did the laboring jobs and were supplied with digging implements to carry them out, but one suspects no armor. What was common was the elaborate flag or ensign denoting the company identity round which they would rally. A company might be a hundred strong and form part of a regiment or district association. So you will hear tales of the London regiments coming down towards Farnham and mustering at Farnham. Where did the new troops train? In earlier times, the area below the castle, which was beyond the medieval town ditch, was used for longbow practice. All able-bodied men being required to attend after attending mass on a Sunday. This had by the 17th century been built on. So drills would take place in the park, that's the new park, the small park that we have today, or on the common land, which is army training ground today, right up on the top of the hill. Action was not long in coming to the area. In October, the castle was garrisoned by a force of about 60 musketeers and 30 horse, together with some pioneers and dragoons. Appointed to command the garrison was George Withers, who had seen a service against the Scots, but who by the Civil War was strongly anti-royalist. He was also an enthusiastic poet, not well appreciated by his fellows and of legal training. What he was not given was sufficient ordinance. So he set off for the tower in London, leaving his post virtually unmanned. Royalists, fresh from the Battle of Edge Hill and rapidly spreading down to Oxford and Reading, took the initiative and seized the castle. The commander was John Denham, a high sheriff of Surrey. So Surrey was a divided county. Remember that the two deputy lieutenants were, in fact, on the parliamentary side. The book laconically states, it is unlikely these events had any effect on the townspeople of Farnham, with the possible exception of the castle servants. That winter, more royalist garrisons were established, Winchester and Basing House being the nearest. Out from London, a relieving force under William Waller descended on Farnham and demanded the surrender of the castle. Denham eyed the relatively small force and refused. After a three-hour assault, Waller's men finally took the gatehouse by attaching a petard to the gate. They stormed a barricade and entered the castle courtyard. The ill-trained defenders threw down their arms and surrendered, Waller showing clemency in accepting this after the earlier refusal. The defenders and their commander were dispatched to London 
after what was the first successful storming of an English royalist stronghold of the Civil War. An order was given to render the castle indefensible. And so the quiet of a winter's day was shattered by the explosions that rent a great hole in the East Turret area that can still be seen today. The garrison remained for six months. In the summer of 1643, Colonel Samuel Jones arrived to keep control of the west of Surrey. He remained until 1645, together with his Greencoats regiment of about eight to 900 Farnham men. So who paid for the upkeep of these troops? The book has a fascinating appendix. The appendix has lists of monies charged and received. It starts with individuals and the amounts lent or given to Parliament. It must be said that more was lent than given. I wonder how many thought they would ever see the money again. The list is headed by Henry Vernon, who lived in Vernon House, now the site of the library, who lent £16, followed by the town bailiffs, who forked out £20. In total, there were 55 people, including several widows. Widows were actually quite important in Farnham. They held quite a lot of property. I only hope that the money was spent wisely. The list then moves to accounts of how money was extracted to finance the war, including tax for eight weeks for Colonel Jones at Farnham Castle of £27, 10 shillings, both charged and received. Both Farnham Town and the outlying settlements of Badshot, Tilford, etc., were taxed, often for troops in more distant parts, including in Ireland and in 1645 for the maintenance of the Scottish troops. The amounts were not small, Farnham Town often having to provide between 16 and 65 pounds at a time. One can imagine the discussions in the town over this they would certainly be feeling the effects of the war by this time. As an aside, I find it remarkable that governments always seem to be able to finance war when peacetime expenditure is less easily come by. Amounts charged, paid and owing were meticulously noted. It's not clear if the debts were ever paid. For the town to have paid so much, trade and farming must have gone on pretty much as normal. Another source of income was from the sequestration of royalist estates, Farnham having quite a few secret or not supporters. Was this also a good opportunity to settle old scores? This would also be going on in areas held by the royalists. Many of their opponents were to suffer greatly in this way. In early 1643, a Western association was formed by Waller with a rendezvous at Farnham to counter the action of Hopton in the West Country. While he was in the West, the action seems to have quietened down in Farnham, but this would change in the last months of that year. One cause of much discussion must have been the flight of the Vicar of Farnham, Paul Clapham, to Royalist Oxford in 1643. Entries in the parish register ceased from this time until resumption after the restoration. Clapham had apparently been outspoken against Parliament, although other charges accused him of adultery with a possible illegitimate son alleged. Before the war, Archbishop Lord had sought to remove undesirable clergy. This adjective described those who were illiterate, accused of drunkenness and other vices many such being regrettably in place. 
Parliamentary power sought to extend this to all who did not take the covenant and preached to the new directory of worship. By 1640, a Puritan preacher called Mr. Duncombe, who may have come from Shalford, was giving the Thursday sermon, which was market day. He continued in post until 1648. Strangely, perhaps, Duncombe was obliged to pay a fifth of his income to Clapham, that is the disappeared cleric, Clapham's wife and family. A series of other preachers followed until the status quo was resumed at the Restoration. During the war, churches received some rough treatment from the parliamentary soldiers, Farnham St Andrews being used as a royalist prison at times. But back to the action, which hots up locally in the autumn of 1643. The wool and cloth convoys from the West Country were being harried by Basinghouse Royalists during the summer, the Hampshire parliamentarians being called out for protection. This was serious as it hit the pockets of local businessmen. Following a disastrous defeat of Waller at Roundway Down near Devizes, the Royalist army streamed westward from Oxford and the combined Royalist forces took Bristol and besieged Gloucester. Parliament responded by sending some of the London horse and foot to the beleaguered Earl of Essex. Waller was tasked with raising a Southern Association army from the Southeast counties, strengthened by troops from London, while many of his officers were Scots or Dutch professionals. They were able to secure the services of a former master gunner of England, Captain James Wemmis, for the artillery train, together with Waller's old regiment of dragoons, 500 strong. They marched across the Thames at Staines, travelling through Windsor and Bagshot to muster at Farnham. The Royalist Hopton had taken Winchester, moving on to Alton, so the threat to London via Farnham was very real. Royalist troopers had been spotted at Woking, Guildford, and even Leatherhead. Wokingham had been burnt for refusing to pay demands made by Royalist soldiers, so the citizens of Farnham must have been very fearful of a like fate. On the 1st of November, Waller and his men arrived. He reviewed a muster of 7,000 men in Farnham Park, including at least 29 companies of foot. The London Regiment were quartered two miles away. The occasion would have been used to reinforce the mostly illiterate men's recognition of their standards and colours. Also chillingly, there took place the public court-martial of a clerk in Waller's regiment, possibly for offences to do with regimental funds or the pay chest. The sentence of death was carried out using one of the park's trees in the sight of the assembled men. An example to all? I would think so. Some troops were in the area for some time to quote, the citizens of Farnham and its surrounding villages to the south were to endure the parasitism of requisition and billeting for two long years from that moment. Waller and his army marched west to Alsford, encountering a snowstorm to add to wet win winter conditions. As you go into Hampshire, the ground gets very, very heavy. It's very heavy clay. From Alsford, they turned towards Basing House. The drums and trumpets of the foot and horse sounded the call before dawn on the morning of 6th of November for the whole army to march as best as they could through fog and over wet and muddy roads. Once there, they spent several fruitless days of siege assault, 
in steadily worsening weather. They were to lose the senior captain of Waller's foot during a fierce hand-to-hand -hand struggle to recapture the Grange. The Grange was part of a basing house. His siege of the house was lifted on the 14th of November during worsening weather and the news of gathering royalist troops in the area. Back they trudged to muster in Farnham, a somewhat rain-lashed, hungry and mutinous band. At this point, it is probably a good idea to explore the part that Basing House was to play in the First Civil War. Situated at what is now called Old Basing, long before the behemoth of Basingstoke was a twinkle in a moderniser's eye, the house was a seat of John Paulet, 5th Marquess of Winchester, a staunch royalist and believed Catholic. It was situated on the route from London to Salisbury on the line of the more modern A30 and as such was important to Charles's hopes of regaining London. The house was a good stronghold with a well-defended central portion. After the fruitless first siege, Waller tried again, this time to raise the siege after a bitter five months. As the parliamentarians became more successful, Oliver Cromwell arrived in August 1645 with the magic ingredient of five demi-cannons and a mighty 63-pounder cannon. This made quick work of the defence, enabling the capture of the Marquis and Sir Robert Peake. As an interesting aside, also present at the house were the elderly architect Inigo Jones. So he who had created the banqueting house some years before. The engraver, Wenceslas Holler, had been present at an earlier siege when an engraving was made. The defenders at the final siege accepted no quarter, so the result was bloody. Ten priests were killed either at the time or executed later. This was, after all, to a large degree, a religious war by this time. Basing House was slighted, and the site was never again inhabited. It can be visited, and it is well worth doing so. It even has a dry section of the later Basingstoke Canal in its grounds. Back to Waller and his retreat to Farnham after the first siege. They were not a moment too soon, as on the morning of 19th of November, a royalist band appeared on the heights above Farnham Park the ridge now hosting the A287 road to, to Odium. A long-range artillery skirmish now took place, with sporadic firing over several hours. The pikes and muskets of the Londoners eventually put them to flight. Fighting continued between Farnham, Alton and Odium for the next week. To try to continue his eastward push towards Kent, Remember, there were royalists towards the west of London and in Kent as well. The royalist Hopton decided to take his all by taking Farnham's castle again. Under cover of a concealing mist, he brought up the entire royalist army of 8,000 men to the hill above the park. Sending a 1,000 musketeers and some horse into the park, within the range of cannon mounted in the castle, he met with the body of Waller's 2,000 men closely grouped near the castle. Waller's dragoons and horse were hidden from their opponents behind a hill in the park. The firing cannons caused casualties among the royalists, resulting in an orderly retreat to the edge of the heath. The withdrawal was harassed by Waller's horse and dragoons. Skirmishes continued all night. 
Hopton clearly did not dare to launch the main body of his army under the accurate cannon fire, and Waller could not be drawn from his defensive position, so a pitched battle could not take place. Waller then reversed the tables with a series of raids on the royalist strongholds in the area. Further reinforcements reached Waller. Five companies of Sir Arthur Heselridge's Bluecoat Foot Regiment marched into the park. A decision was now made. Having failed to take Farnham, Hopton would bypass Farnham to the south. In doing this, however, he stretched his lines of communication too far. While Hopton was diverted by a raid on Romsey, Waller led his men from Farnham to Alton, where the ensuing battle destroyed the Royalist force there. The Parliamentarian force numbered about 5,000, whereas the Royalists had only a regiment of foot and one of horse, totaling perhaps 1,500 men. It doesn't sound very equal, does it? The last desperate stand in St. Lawrence's Church resulted in the death of the Colonel Richard Boll, one of the King's most loyal supporters. More than 500 prisoners were marched back to Farnham, many of them taking the Covenant and joining Waller's troops. This compensated for a loss of soldiers due to indiscipline. One of Waller's officers decamped with a pay chest to join the King at Oxford. On recapture by Waller's men, he was publicly hanged in the marketplace in Farnham. Nationally, the face of the parliamentarians was changing. Moderate voices were being drowned out by more radical and religiously extreme groups, led by the member for Cambridge, Oliver Cromwell. A new committee, that of the two kingdoms, was set up as a result of the entry of Scotland into the conflict. In the meantime, Prince Rupert seized Newark, tying down the Eastern Army to attempt to recapture it. It was vital that Waller defeat the Royalist Hopton in the south. And this was accomplished at the Battle of Cheritons, where the finest of the King's cavalry saw defeat. Once again, spring 1644 saw a muster at Farnham, where the convoys of shot, powder and horses were gathered. Waller's absence once more emboldened the troops at Basing House to attempt to raid on Odium, perhaps to render it indefensible. They were foiled by the action of an informer, and Colonel Jones was able to position his men to thwart them. As a result, six officers and 90 men were marched off to Farnham as prisoners, thus seriously depleting the Basing garrison. Off went a Surrey group of troops to besiege Basing once again, but it still managed to hold on against the odds. During the early winter of 1644, it became apparent that the disputes and self-interest of the various parliamentary commanders-in-chief were prolonging a conflict which the country as a whole was heartily sick. The new model army was formed, with Parliament free to appoint all army commanders. The extent of the people's disillusion was shown by the formation of what is called the clubmen, who were groups of yeomans and farmers armed with cudgels and pitchforks who sought to protect their possessions from the soldiers of either side. A force of Royalist cavalry swept through Farnham in January 1645, perhaps on a hit-and-run raid to spread alarm. Contrary to popular supposition, it did not seem like a raid on the castle, as Colonel Jones's greatcoats were there, and parliamentary soldiers were still billeted in the area. Perhaps, like teenage vandals today, they did it for the hell of it and because the speed of it would be hard to counter. 
They carried on cutting a swathe through the countryside until they reached Portsmouth six days later. It did little, however, to slow the preparations of Waller for an expedition to the west to relieve some of the major towns. To swell the numbers of his foot, he seems to have drawn on the Farnham garrison, leaving a small force of cavalry to assist in keeping control of events locally. It was to be his last command. During the course of this campaign, the so-called self-denying ordinance came into effect and Waller resigned his commission, along with the Earls of Essex and Manchester. The ordinance required all members on active service to give up their commands. The appointments to be made in future by the Derby House Committee of Parliament from whomsoever they chose. The new model army, whose supreme commander was Sir Thomas Fairfax, absorbed some of the horse and foot soldiers and took over the fighting. Colonel Jones, for two years the garrison commander at Farnham Castle, was replaced. The replacement, Colonel John Fielder, having a much reduced force under his control. Colonel Jones may not have been a popular figure in the area, as it was his job to oversee the Roundhead garrison in a town where there may have been many royalists, loyalists who were not entirely without influence. Thankfully to the people of the area, the military burden seemed to lift from April 1645. Forays from Winchester and Basing still gave national trouble, but the days of the king's loyal supporters were numbered. During August and September, this is 1645, Farnham witnessed the assembly of the artillery and the passage of ammunition wagon trains on their way to besiege Basing House once more, for the final time, this time successfully. Among the men were 100 foot from the Farnham garrison. This effectively was the end of the use of the castle as a military base. The winter of 1645 to 6 was exceptionally severe, and in 1646, the last bitter remains of royalist resistance were snuffed out. And on the 5th of May, 1646, the king surrendered to the Scots at Newark. The first civil war was at an end. So now the townspeople of Farnham were left to get business back again. The borough accounts talk of expenditure on the town hall, remember the rather nice timbered building at the bottom of Castle Street, and the repair of the road nearby, which acted as the marketplace. The market receipts of £66 for 1646 would seem to justify the cost. There was a payment of three shillings to replace lead taken from the town hall roof that had been taken to be melted down for shot. The borough accounts are very brief for the years 1642 to 1645, this would indicate a breakdown in civilian administration coincidental with the occupation of the castle by a garrison and the presence of Waller's army. The citizens themselves seem to have come through largely unscathed, although there was an increase in widows remarrying in subsequent years. The wheat market for which Farnham was noted continued to prosper despite a series of poor harvests. Perhaps the purveyors of grain and flour had a role in manipulating the market to their own advantage, as is often the case in times of shortage. In August 1647, Oliver Cromwell rode into London with the new model army at his back, in what was effectively a military coup. Moderates, including Waller, were forced to flee the country to escape arrest. The king was seized but escaped and galloped through the town of Farnham on his way to a rendezvous at Bishop Sutton 
Now, Bishop Sutton is tiny these days, so you can't imagine a rendezvous there. Charles was eventually to be imprisoned at Carisbrook Castle for almost a year, while negotiations were underway to provide a constitutional settlement. The army predictably proved increasingly unpopular, and in 1648, the second phase of fighting began, with riots in South Wales, which rapidly spread to England, reaching Farnham in May 1648. Following intelligence that royalist supporters were planning to capture and fortify several castles, including that of Farnham, the order was given to render it indefensible. Sir Richard Onslow, as Deputy Lieutenant for Surrey, was charged with carrying out the order, resulting in the castle profile that we know today. The threat of a settlement with Charles goaded the army into action, and many loyal supporters were arrested, including Waller. Charles began his last journey along the Southampton to London Road, lodging the night of 20th of December at Vernon House. Henry Vernon and his wife were solicitor's hosts, spending some time in shepherding through the local people who wished to catch a sight of the king. His gift of a morning cap to Henry is now commemorated by a contemporary model in Farnham Museum. In the account books of 1649 appear payments for wood and candles when the king lay at town. Also, one shilling and sixpence for beer and tobacco for the soldiers of the escort, whose lodging cost 10 shillings. So what of the peace? With the king dead, the monarchy and House of Lords were abolished and a commonwealth established. Scotland, however, recognised his son, Prince Charles, as Charles II. And of course, he would later become Charles II in England as well. Charles escaped after his defeat at Worcester, a confrontation that Onslow managed to avoid, either due to design or the state of his troops, who had marched 150 miles in a week. In Farnham, the bishop's property was sold off and locals helped themselves to the park paling, the fence round the park, for firewood. It was decided that the householder should pave their house frontages, permission being given to use any stone from the castle that Captain Brewer would allow. There was a crackdown on known royalist sympathisers, but in general there was greater religious tolerance than before. Catholics were tolerated and Jews allowed back into England. George Fox, a Quaker, preached throughout the country, sowing the seeds of the later Quaker fellowships. He stayed at the Bush Hotel, where he discussed theology with the professionals of the town, whoever they were. They ordered ale and faggots, but left Fox to pay the bill. Beware seemingly sympathetic townspeople keen to get a free drink. At the Restoration, the clergy and gentry of Surrey, including Onslow, signed a petition to welcome Charles. Farnham paid £134 and four pence to the, averted commas, free and voluntary present to be given to the king. How free, how voluntary, I'll leave you to imagine. In all, 3,881 people in Surrey contributed £4,565 and 10 and a half pence, some paying very reluctantly due to religious differences. In 1660, Farnham's two bailiffs, James Mannery and Robert Lee, paid over £9 for wine and five shillings for beer to celebrate. I hope that the largesse was widely spread. 
As a reward for his service with the Farnham Castle garrison, Lieutenant Colonel Jeremy Baines was later given the task of counting the dead in London due to the plague. I hope he was duly grateful for the job. What of the church whose vicar had fled? Walter Tomlinson, the appointed Anglican cleric of Farnham, had to have recourse to the law to regain access to the church. The nonconformists stopping him were jailed and fined at the quarter sessions, but the nonconformist congregation remained strong in Farnham, mostly among merchants and craftsmen and their families, and they were very strong in the East Street area, where a Baptist chapel was erected later. On reinstatement, the bishop tried to reinstate for himself the rights to market tolls in order to pay for repairs to the castle and the bishop's palace, where the living quarters were. This right had been granted to the people of Farnham long before, and so they were understandably unhappy about this. The bailiffs and burgesses fought him in law, finally winning the case, which left them with debts that took several years to clear. It must have been worth it to have the lucrative market fees back in their hands. And the bishop's hold on the town of Farnham was never as strong again. And so the last fight in Farnham of the civil wars had been with the bishop. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.